Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us today as we continue our study here in your word. Help me, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth. Help me to teach and preach in a way that honors you and magnifies your holy name. I pray, Lord God, that you would balance me. I pray, Lord God, that you'd correct me. I pray, Lord God, that you'd show me my mistakes, my errors, my misunderstandings. Lord, the places that I'm not following you perfectly, Lord God, and I pray that you would not only expose them to my wicked heart, Lord, and show me my need, but Lord, that you would, by your grace and power and mercy, Father, um, enable me and change, enable me to change and to change me, Father, more into the image and likeness of Christ, and help me, Lord, to understand more and better of your word every day, Lord God. I thank you, Father, for the privilege of preaching and teaching your word. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd find me faithful, Lord God, not by my own faithfulness, but by thy faithfulness imparted to me. And I ask you for this in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at apostolic authority as the Apostle Paul here is speaking to the Thessalonian church and he has finally brought up his apostleship which was unique in the book of Thessalonians and that Paul waited until the middle of chapter 2 to even mention his apostleship which is um, as you can study out for yourself that's rare in most cases in most of the epistles that Paul wrote he would um, open his letters Paul an apostle or something of that nature and Paul Paul's apostolic authority was un undoubtable, un undoubtable in the Bible, the fact that he is an apostle, and um, he spoke much on it. And in fact, um, everything that we know about apostolic authority and the doctrine of apostleship comes from the teachings of the apostle Paul as far as doctrinal teachings are concerned. Jesus Christ is the one who ordained the twelve apostles, and those we can find um, called apostles in the gospel. But to have the doctrine actually expounded upon comes from the inspiration inspired scriptures that were given by God through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he had just said there to the church in verse 6 that they sought not glory of men, neither of you nor yet of others. He says, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. So even here it was an indirect mention of his apostleship. And that is very significant. It's significant because apostles aren't anything big. And you'll notice that he used a little a, a little a there. Apostle really isn't what everybody makes it out to be. We've had two lessons now that have dealt with, um, first of all, biblical apostleship. Secondly, the role of the apostle. The word apostle is, um, is a word that conveys the idea of being sent. It doesn't really have any kind of special power or authority attached to it as a word. What made the 12 apostles of the Lamb unique was that they were handpicked by Christ. Now we know that those 12 are limited to that number by the book of Revelation um, towards the end where it mentions the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There were not 13 apostles of the Lamb or 14 apostles of the Lamb. There were 12 and that's because that's what the Bible says. So I really don't see a point in having any kind of argument on that subject. Now the Bible also, as we've noted in Acts 14, I think it's 14 chapter 14 verse 14 says the apostles Barnabas and Saul and then here in first Thessalonians it talks about we Paul Silvanus Timotheus in direct context as the apostles of Christ and so we see that the Bible uses the word apostle in two forms in two ways first to um, note those that were sent directly the direct witnesses of the life of Christ who lived with Christ from the beginning of his ministry until his ascension and they were they were with him through that whole time the apostle Paul as is added in as one born out of due time in his own words we've studied this out and those apostles had an extra measure of power from on high an extra measure of authority in the in the part of revelation of scripture etc but then there were also others who followed in the footsteps of the 12 and had a similarly modeled ministry who were referred to by the apostle as apostles. 
And these were not some kind of superheroes running around doing a bunch of um, smoke and mirror magic parlor tricks and getting people to send them all their money on the television. (coughs) But these were men who labored like the Apostle Paul in the same ministry as the Apostle Paul, carrying the gospel to places where the gospel was not as of yet and working in what we would call today pioneer mission work. Uh, going places where the name of Christ is not named. And that was the primary, primary and the only function, um, this evangelistic church building work, the duplication work that some people call church planting, which as we've also noted, does I've not seen a scriptural reference that can um, validate that term. I really want to and desire to use biblical terms. I want to use the words the Bible says the way the, the Bible means them, whether anybody agrees agrees with that usage or not. My desire is to let the Bible be the sole authority, even in my vocabulary. And in any case, these that would call themselves church planners would fall under this um, other use of apostle, which is to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ as witnesses and to preach the word of Jesus Christ and to further the work of the 12 apostles of the Lamb under their authority, not as little demigods running around um, speaking um, ex cathedral from whatever pulpit they choose to pick, uh, and so we're going to move on from there. So here, these the, uh, the apostolic ministry here, he says, we looked at how the role of the apostle is that of a nurse cherishing, their, cherishing her children, and now in verse 11, we're going to look at this apostolic authority with the use of the word of a, as a father doth his children. So there's three parts here of what the apostle said that they did to the church at Thessalonica. They exhorted, they comforted, and they charged. Now, exhorting is to beseech each with all my heart. An exhortation is, <coughs> excuse me, to beg you, to beseech you, to plead with you, and at the same time to encourage you. It's a mixture of those things. And so it's, it's this prodding. <coughs> it's this um, incentivizing and prodding and um, trying to gently push you and prod you towards what is right. And that's the basic idea of an exhortation. An exhortation is a strong, uh, is a strong request couple, coupled a little bit with reproof maybe, um, but it's not so much as to be a rebuke or a reproof but rather a strong suggestion to do the right thing. Have you ever gotten a strong suggestion from your daddy? Where he says, I really think you should do this. And he says it in just the right way that you know that if you don't do that, he's going to escalate it beyond an exhortation. Now, an exhortation, though, is still, it's just an exhortation. It is a strong prodding, a strong suggesting, a helpful prodding to try and provoke one to love and good works. Comforting is to calm and to quiet and to settle hearts. So he says here, as the as fathers, we try as a father would his children, we exhorted, we comforted, and that is to calm and to quiet. Think of a little child in the night. Now a child in the daytime that doesn't get a popsicle and starts crying needs to be exhorted, prodded. They need to be (coughs) told that they're acting very immaturely and that it's unacceptable to cry over something that you do not get. But a child that wakes up in the middle of the night and they've had a bad dream and they're incoherent and they're not really in there, so to speak, and they're um, really struggling with fear and terror, the father then would not use that time to exhort, but rather to comfort, which would be to calm and to quiet and to settle hearts. And then the charge is a command that must be obeyed. So whereas the child in the night would be comforted when he cried, the child during the day that didn't get the popsicle he wanted and was crying may be exhorted, but when that child is exhorted to not cry over a popsicle and he does not heed that exhortation, but he begins to throw a temper tantrum, then he may receive a charge from his father. And the charge would be a, be quiet, stop what you're doing, stop immediately, this is wrong. 
which would then have to be backed up. A charge means nothing if you can't back it up. If you can boss people around all you want, but until you back it up, you're not really acting in an authority. So we're going to look at how a charge was backed up by an apostle here of the Lamb in Acts chapter 5. Go there real quick. Some of you will know exactly what we're talking about before we even get there. Now, the apostles here were preaching to the church in the book of Acts, and it says a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now the charge happened there at the end. Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And in this case, the charge was not only a commandment, but it was also a a charge or an in the sense of an accusation. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And the young man arose, wound him, carried him out. His wife did the same thing. Um, There in the next in the next chapter. There, I'm sorry. Excuse me. In the next few verses, trying to beat this cough, and appreciate your prayers for it. Now, um, in Acts chapter ten, if you go there, I'm sorry. That's the that's the wrong chapter. chapter that I was looking for is the chapter where, and this was not one I intended to use, but I just thought of it. I wanted to add it in here. Um, I want the chapter where Peter was about to be killed. That would be chapter 12. So here, Peter was about to be killed, and the church was praying without ceasing, and for Peter, and he came and knocked, and they didn't believe it was him, uh, but then they finally came to the door and saw Peter, and they were astonished. Verse 17 of Acts 12 says, But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed. So there he came to the church as they were in prayer, and he comforted them. Now, it doesn't tell us of words of comfort, but by merely arriving on the scene, he comforted them. In another place, we have the apostles telling the church back in Acts chapter 4, here is an exhortation to the church. The rulers said, speak no more in his name. And they came back to the church and they told the church there in verse 24, what the chief priests or verse 23, what the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And you have here in the midst of this, the opportunity for exhortation, um, prodding the church to pray. And they did by their example as much as by their word. Now, most churches want comfort. In this, in this day that we live in, um, churches are very prone to want comfort. And a preacher that will, get, that will master the art of comforting the church will have an unending um, supply of pulpits to fill as pastors and um, from all over the nation will call him and ask him to come and fill the pulpit so that he can comfort them and those pastors will have unending work they'll go from church to church to church and they may preach on Peter walking on the water and how whenever he began to see the waves he began to sink and there's a place for comfort it's one of these areas that the apostles comforted the the Thessalonican church it's a real ministry it's part of of the work that God would have um, the pastor to do, the teachers to do, the other people that are involved there, the ministry gifts of the church should comfort the church. But um, you can see and make the application of the waves. The waves are the persecutions. The waves are the troubles. Maybe you've got loved ones in the hospital. Maybe you have a wayward son. And often you'll hear a preacher that is um, well-versed in comforting using those kinds of analogies. And he'll tell the people, just hold on a a little longer, just carry on a little farther, and that's something that is needed. A comforting pastor is a wonderful thing, and it's a gift from God. And but the thing is, today most churches want comfort, but very few churches will allow exhortation. Some will. 
that prodding, that provoking to love and to good works. Most people don't want to be exhorted in our day. Most people don't want a preacher to stand up and say, having done all, stand. You need to stand in the good times. You need to stand in the bad times. You need to thank God when you're rich and you need to thank God when you're poor. God didn't promise you a rose garden. He didn't promise you easy, smooth sailing. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Don't give up. Be not weary in well-doing. Most churches in our day and age don't want anything to do with exhortation. They want the comfort, but they don't want exhortation. And what church in this nation today is willing to be charged? What church in this, in this nation today is willing to be commanded from the word of God to obey? That's what a charge is. And that really is the root of the spiritual declension, the falling away that's happening in America is our hatred in the American church for authority, our hatred for authority. We're talking today about apostolic authority. We saw the retribution of the attribolic of the apostolic authority there in Acts chapter 5. Now go to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Here's Paul who has dealt with the church at Corinth, and the church here had sin in the camp. Now again, Paul, I believe very clearly in the scripture, is the 12th apostle of the Lamb. But again, um, the Bible doesn't out and say that he was the 12th apostle of the Lamb. I believe there's strong scriptural evidence, but since the Bible doesn't say that he is, I cannot dogmatically stand against someone who says that he's not. But I would just ask you to produce biblical evidence that anybody else is. In any case, I believe that it's pretty clear um, from the evidence that the Apostle Paul had that position of being an Apostle of the Lamb. Also, this was a church that Paul had founded, that God, by the grace of God, had allowed Paul to found. And here, Paul was rebuking the church for the sin that was in the church. And you can read that in 1 Corinthians. Um, the entire book, practically, is a rebuke from the Apostle Paul. And here in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the means and gentleness of Christ, who in presence in base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So he's speaking here about this contrast between the man that they see in the flesh and the authority that God has given him as an apostle, which we will see when we get down to verse 8, where he talks about, for though I should boast somewhat of our authority and we'll get there in just a minute as we go so he's building up to this authority and he's presenting the Corinthian church with his apostolic authority and this is going to lead to two more chapters a total of three chapters in the book of 2nd Corinthians that give you a clear understanding of what an apostle is and of what an apostle's life is like and how to see and judge an apostle we st- we ran out we looked at these in brief in biblical apostles and then we looked at them again in a little more detail in the role of the apostle and now we're looking at more of the beginning the authority of the apostle today he says here but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh so here Paul speaks of the opportunity to be bold but says that he doesn't really want to be bold he's not looking to be bold he's not trying to lord it over the flock he's trying to comfort and if they won't follow through the comfort then he's trying to exhort and if they're not going to follow the exhortation and they're not going to do what they're told by the apostle. He's telling them, I'm going to be bold among you. I've charged you. I've told you what to do and you better obey it. And if you don't, I'm going to bring the hammer when I come next time. The hammer's coming down. That's what he says down throughout this whole passage here. He's warning them. He's charging them. He's saying, you better listen. You think I'm weak. You see the man, Paul, and you see a weak man and you're right because as he tells 
tells you here through this passage he's just a weak man. But what he's also warning them of is that behind that weak man, there is the authority of Jesus Christ in his role of an apostle to the church of Corinth. And he even tells them, if I be not an apostle unto others, doubtless I am to you. And that's a key verse to take into the understanding of apostolic authority. That deals with jurisdiction which is absolutely important. So here the Apostle Paul is warning them, if you won't listen, I'm going to bring down the hammer when I come. And he warns the church at Corinth. He tells them, get the fornicators out of your church. Get the drunks out of your church. Get the covetous out of your church. He tells them, you're not even to eat with those people there in 1 Corinthians 5. And he's telling them here, when I come, you won't want to see me if I get there. And there's still people that have not repented of their fornication and their wicked deeds. You won't know Paul. That's what he tells them. You read it for yourself. He tells them, you ain't seen nothing yet. You don't know Paul the way you're going to see Paul if I show up and this stuff is still going on in the church. That's some strong speech. That is some strong speech. Kind of like a daddy who loves his son. And his son is a good boy most of the time. And so he comforts his son and he nurtures his son. But then his son starts to go down a wrong path and he starts to exhort his son and call his son to return. And his son won't heed the exhortations. So he charges his son and he says, son, you better change your ways. Son, you better do what I tell you to do. And the son ignores those charges and the dad looks at his son and he says, all right. You won't heed my, you won't learn from my comfort. You won't heed my exhortation. You won't obey my charges. And now the discipline is coming. And that was what Paul was doing to the church at Corinth. Now, we don't like authority. We don't like authority in America in general. That's why everybody has switched from um, the reality that America is a republic. Everybody wants to call it a democracy now. A republic is representative authority. A democracy is every man does that which is right in his own eyes. If you think this is a democracy, um, you don't even know what you're talking about. And all these people that um, live here in America and call themselves American citizens, if you are a citizen of the United States of America, you are part of the republic, which means you are part of the authority structure. So um, all you people out there that think that your non-involvement in government makes you holy, if you are an American, you are involved in government you better find a different country and I love you but I'm just telling you the truth because in America this is a government of the people for the people and by the people which means that you are the government in America not as an individual but all of us together and your inaction as part of the authority having jurisdiction does not relieve you of responsibility in the sight of God whenever you allow wicked laws to take place you either need to get yourself a new country where you don't have the right to vote and you don't have the right to have a part in government or you better just take it or you better start doing righteous judgment and biblically ruling the land that God has made you a ruler over because every citizen of America is part of the ruling power of America. That's how it's set up. Whether you like it or not, and your little opinion doesn't change that. Now, in any case, um, apostles here, where we got on a rabbit trail there, the apostles, the 12 apostles of the Lamb were given by Christ. He told Peter, uh, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Remember where he told Peter that he was the rock? He said, behold, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. A lot of people will take that this and misapply it to Peter with absolutely no biblical evidence that he was talking about Peter. And you go study the rock out for yourself. There's no place in the Bible that makes Peter the rock. It calls him the, a stone, Cephas, by interpretation, a stone. And he was a stone. You can read about those stones as lively stones. And wasn't that Peter that said it? Maybe I got that wrong, but talked about lively stones, how that all of God's people are as lively stones. But the rock is Jesus Christ. And he says to Peter, thou art Peter upon this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
rail against it. And then he says to him, and a little bit there, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have have thee, have you that he may strengthen you or that he may sift you as wheat. But when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He says, I have prayed for thee. I have prayed for thee. He had a special job for Peter, and he used the singular there. I have prayed for thee. Satan hath desired to have you, to have all of you disciples. You in the Bible means you all. Thee means what we would say is you. It's the singular and the plural. So there, Lord, help me not get on rabbit trails. So there he said to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So Peter was commanded by Christ to strengthen his brethren. And again, that shows the equality of the people in the church. Do you hear me today? Jesus himself said, in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God. There's neither male nor female. The church in spirit is equal across the board. Every member of the body is equal in value before God, but every member does not have the same role or the same job, the same responsibility. And Peter had a special job, a special responsibility to strengthen his brethren. And Peter there on the day of Pentecost stood up and preached at the head of those 100 and they became several thousand and he became um, as acting in the role of the main pastor of the church of the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the church that was formed there. Peter uh, presided over that church, led that church. He was the main speaker, and he was understood to be the main speaker and main representative, which is one of the reasons he was hunted down by Herod. Now, that church is the one from which these other ministries sprang, that church at Jerusalem, not the church at Rome. All of you folks that want to try and claim succession, you better go put your church in Jerusalem because that was the first church, not the church at Rome. The church at Rome came way later. Isn't this stuff nuts? Where do they get this stuff? In any case, um, they get it out of their own dark hearts. That's where they get it. Their own darkened hearts. So in any case, this church here then was under the direct authority of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And this gives us kind of a typecast for the work of an apostle who is operating under the apostles. The apostles did not run around taking authority over churches they did not start. Do you hear me today? They only had authority over the churches they started. It just so happened that the 12 apostles of the Lamb started what churches? Which ones? All of them. Huh. How about that? Therefore, they had authority, special authority, over all the churches. Now, Paul in one of his epistles says, If I be not an apostle unto others, doubtless I am to you. And this gives you a clear picture of apostolic jurisdiction. The jurisdiction of the apostle, which is the pioneer church planting, so to speak, missionary. And I really would like to get away from church planting. I can't say it without saying that. Um, church building, church um, birthing. God has to build a church. But God sends men to do the labor and to organize them and to form them and to bring them into, into being. Souls are planted um, or uh, someone's the word of God's planted in your heart and you get saved. I don't understand this church planning thing myself. But in any case, moving on, the apostles therefore have special authority and oversight over the churches that they bring into the world. As a nurse cherisheth her children. But it is as a nurse primarily that they have this authority. So a nurse doesn't walk up to a kid and start slapping the kid and say, I'm just mad at you today. The nurse doesn't do that. The nurse is gentle. The nurse cherisheth. The nurse is not the one generally to apply the rod. You go back to that and that would be the the schoolmaster would apply the rod in the old days. But the nurse generally would be there to feed, to clothe, to diaper, to change the diapers, to change the bedding, to change the clothing, and do all of the monotonous, mundane tasks of raising an infant to a young child until that child could be handed over to a schoolmaster, to be taken to tutors and governors to be taught. 
And this is the role of the apostle in the Bible. And this is where their authority line is drawn. The authority of an apostle is limited to the works that that apostle, the church fellowships, that that apostle himself has actively had a leadership role in forming. And there is no succession in the Bible. Now, this is important. Some of you think I'm splitting hairs. Some of you think I'm off on the moon or something. I can't help that. I'm just trying to preach Bible. So the... The apostles then, operating under the scriptural authority of the twelve, are also witnesses of God, and they are sent out to pioneer church work, begin churches, and they have special areas only and specifically, special authority only and specifically, over the churches that God gave them to lead in their formation and infancy. Usually such works never get very deep. Usually God will use a special um, what some would call church planter, what the Bible would call an apostle. Someone who goes into an area where there are no Bible-believing churches and he labors, and over those years of his labors, he sees God bring many churches from many cities so that now there's maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 100 churches, who knows? And between those churches, he spends much of his time traveling and training local men to take the role of pastor, and he'll preach itinerantly between them and it will be the care of all those churches that God gave him and in that role he's fulfilling the role of the apostle and he has some degree of authority as a nurse his authority is limited to that specific those specific locations God has given him and not only is his authority limited to those locations it's limited to the word of God he's stuck with the word of God that's already revealed that you have in your laps and in your hands right there you see the 12 apostles of the lamb had authority from God to reveal to us Scripture, and that's clear in the Word of God, along with the prophets, were built. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Speaking of the twelve apostles of the Lamb and the prophets of the Old Testament who gave us the scriptures. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone because He is the Word. And so here you have the apostolic authority of the twelve to reveal scripture is not passed on to the ministerial office of apostle. Instead, the apostle who is the missionary, look it up. Where's missionary in your Bible? You want to argue about this, then just shut down missions because missions isn't in your Bible either. See, the thing is we have used new words and we've made up new words, which by the way, if my understanding is right, are Catholic because of the misuse and abuse of biblical words that has caused us to form anti-doctrines, which we looked at yesterday, and has caused us to hate biblical words. Because of the way that they're misapplied. And we've got to get back to the biblical application of biblical words and you take them back. What are you going to do when they use the word pastor wrong? They already are. What are you going to come up with? Ombudsman. Now we've got ombudsman of the church. Well, they'll misuse that one eventually too. They're just going to keep running you right off of the Bible. Off of every page. Off of every term. Off of every verse. <laughs> until you've got no Bible left to stand on. And when they get us off the Bible, that makes us prone to error. Because now we're not using the biblical terms. We don't notice the scriptures that apply to the terms that we're using anymore. And then we come up with all kinds of man-made doctrines to support our man-made terms. And it's hard to even sort out. It's next to impossible. It gets so tangled up and so murky. We've got to get back to biblical terms and biblical definitions of the biblical terms. So the apostles operating under the authority of the apostles of the Lamb, they go out and they start a work. Let's say somebody um, starts a work in Antarctica. And he starts the first church of Antarctica. And uh, maybe to be a Baptist church. It would be the first Baptist church of Antarctica. Or the first independent Bible Baptist church of Antarctica. And that would be great. But whatever it is, let's say this church gets started down there in Antarctica. The man that starts that church, let's say he leads a hundred people to Christ. And in the process of doing that, one of those men shows qualifications to be an elder. And through scriptural 
general commandment of the apostle Paul who said to ordain elders in every city, that man is ordained to be pastor of the first church of Antarctica. Meanwhile, that preacher who went down there that everybody calls a missionary who's operating in an apostolic role has authority not to rebuke that man as Paul told Timothy who here in Thessalonians was called an apostle along with Silvanus and Paul. He told Timothy, rebuke not an elder, i.e. pastor, there in that sense, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. So if you take that and you understand that the apostle does not have any authority to lord it even over pastors that he himself ordained, do you hear me? In fact, the reality is we're on an equal playing field, co-laborers with Christ, but our jurisdictions are not equal. And if that pastor began to allow heresies into his church down there in Antarctica, and that, um, that missionary, what the Bible would use the word apostle for, went back down there and found heresies in the church, he would have a special amount of authority with which to rebuke that heresy and try and remove it from the church. But he'd have to be careful to do it without usurping the pastor's position in the church. And guess what? If you l- Listen to me. If, you, if your church gets formed, listen to me. Let's say you guys are all penguin-eating native Antarcheans. There aren't any. All the only people down there are scientists. But let's say that, um, that moved there to study things. because Nobody can live down there. But let's say that a village got formed down there, and you guys were all Antarcheans, and you didn't know about God, and here comes a missionary, and he preaches the gospel, and you, several of you get saved, and a church is formed, and a pastor is ordained from amongst those that were saved by this man's labors, and that man leaves for a year and come back, comes back. Would you guys dunk a bucket of cold water over his head and tell him to hit the road? No. You'd probably love him, wouldn't you? You'd probably have a great deal of respect for him, wouldn't you? Why? Because he says, I'm an apostle. No, because he earned it. And he earned it with his labor, with his love, with his care, with his instruction. And therefore, he has authority that he earned. Do you hear me today? This is important to understand. There's no such thing as apostles who get some kind of special endowment from authority of authority over people that from on high, some kind of weird ultra authority thing. This stuff really isn't that complicated if we just compare scripture to scripture. Go to the book of John, chapter 21. Excuse me. John 21. This is really no different than the concept of a pastor with his church, a teacher with his class. Okay. Um, John 21. Here Jesus says to Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. In verse 16, Jesus said, feed my sheep. In verse 17, Jesus said, feed my sheep. This idea of lording it over the flock and trying to walk around and strut your stuff in some kind of false authority is not apostleship. It's not in the Bible. And that's what I'm trying to show you through the Word of God today. How to discern true apostolic authority. Number one, it's earned. And it's given voluntarily by the people that submit to that apostle who is telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching them. And they want to learn, so they come and sit to learn. So they yield voluntary submission as he proves his love and care for them. And this is the same the way that authority works with pastoral authority. There is no arbitrary pastoral authority. Some guy doesn't get to, listen to me, if we go to church Sunday and we show up and some guy jumps up in the pew and says, God just called me to be a pastor, so y'all better listen up, I'm the pastor around these parts. He's going to get unceremoniously thrown out of the church. It doesn't work that way. But that doesn't mean we don't have pastors. Just because some people kind of try and do that kind of thing. Okay? It's really simple. 
a pastor gets voluntary submission from the flock. And that submission must continue to be voluntary. If the flock decides to no longer submit to the pastor, he really doesn't have a choice in the matter. It's voluntary submission. The man has to be ordained of God and under, recognized by the church as God's man for the church or it won't work. This is how it works with a teacher and a class and in every other area. Now, usually somebody that has multiple churches like Kenneth Cates did down on the Amazon River and he's teaching all of these Amazonians the Bible. These guys were um, devil worshipers. They were all nominally Catholic, as all true Catholics are nominally Catholic. There's no such thing as a zealous Catholic unless you're killing people. you got to kill people that don't believe in what you believe to be a, a real zealous Catholic. But your average nominal Catholic doesn't really know what they believe and doesn't know why they believe it, and they don't know the Bible at all. Totally biblically ignorant. And they, these people were such, and they do all their devil worship, and the Catholic Church accepts it, which is also normal of the Catholic Church. So these people were down there in their ignominy, in their, in their witchcraft, in their pagan rites and rituals, and here comes Kenneth Cates down the river in his little boat. And he's dressed all shabby, and he's got dysentery because he's been drinking water from the Amazon River, and he's skin and bones because he's been eating the food people gave him. Because if you read Kenneth Cates' story, that man went down there on nothing but the word of God and a prayer. God said, go, and he went. And he landed down there with not one supporting church, except that his church that was very poor had told him they would send him whatever they could when they could. And he landed down there and lived with the local people, and he learned their language, and he went out in their river, and he drank their water, and he ate their food, and he learned their customs, and he married one of their girls, and he raised one, a family like they did in their conditions. And in the process of his labors all along that river and all of God's miraculous provision and mir miraculous, you want miracles, read the book about Kenneth, Kenneth Gates. He had some miracles, powerful miracles that God worked in that man's life to even keep him alive. And here he went down that river preaching the gospel and eventually over time the people that many of them were hostile eventually turned, repented of their sins, accepted Christ and built little stick churches all up and down the river. Now most of us wouldn't think much of those churches and we wouldn't think much of their pews and we wouldn't think much of their doctrine either. And you go in there and find a bunch of people that they've just learned how to sing Jesus Loves Me. So they're going to sing it 75 times because it's the only song that they know. And they're just happy to know the idea that Jesus loves me. And they don't know the difference between eros and phileo, much less agape. But they just love Jesus. And this is typical of baby churches. Paul said at the Corinthian church, I fed you with milk and not with meat. He said to them also, I purpose to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. He told another church, it is good that the heart be established in grace and not in meats. And he fought and labored to just get these people to understand the most basic doctrines of the faith. And they didn't get very deep. That's normal. Normal for apostolic pioneer work. It's not glamorous. It doesn't pay good. Paul the apostle says, I think that God has set us the apostles last. Basically, the off, he did not basically verbatim, the off scouring of the earth, of the world. Despised, afflicted, rejected, ignored. Nobody likes us. Everybody hates us is what he said about his own ministry. Now, um, this is why we need these other ministries. The apostle is not some kind of superhero running around with extra divine revelation, superpowers, lightning coming from his fingertips, amassing wealth from the coffers of every poor widow woman he can wow and woo, committing fornication with every pastor's daughter he can lay hands on. This has nothing to do with, ap with apostolic ministry in the Bible. Now, we're on the authority. We've got to get back to that. As there is no biblical model of succession of, of an apostle's ministry, there is no reasonable <coughs> church hierarchy that can be claimed. 
no biblical model of succession of apostolic bishoprics except that of Judas, the only one allowed, or, and Jesus Christ himself succeeded Judas. He picked Paul on the road to Damascus. He said, right there, bam. And he picked him. He appeared to him. He audibly spoke to him from heaven. He showed himself to him. And by the way, Paul had been with Jesus against Jesus the whole time Jesus had ministered from the baptism of John all the way up to his ascension. Now, Paul wasn't with them because he was against them. But he was there, and he was party to what was going on as an enemy, which is an amazing truth. And boy, does that preach. You can contrast Judas and Paul. Judas, the son that said he would go and didn't go. Paul, the son, said, the son that said, not on your life, and went anyway. Said he wouldn't go and did. So here we have no hierarchy, no claim anywhere that you can have any biblical foundation for of an apostolic succession any more than there's a claim of a deacon succession or a pastor succession. These things are not in the Bible. God calls a man, God equips the man, God sends the man, God ordains the man, and then the man dies and goes on to his reward and God calls whoever else he's going to call. God picks who he picks to do what he wants. That's why so many churches that will take the pastor's son and make him pastor end up blown out. Do you hear me? It almost never works. The only time it does work is whenever God did it. But by and large, it doesn't work. Just because the pastor's son knows everything the pastor ever said and can repeat every one of the pastor's stories and has lived through every business meeting and everything that ever happened and he knows every building program and he knows where everything is in the whole church, front to back, top to bottom, doesn't mean he's qualified to be the next pastor. The man God picks is the only man qualified to be the next pastor. And the same is true of the apostleship. So a church that is formed can only be formed once. How many of you figured that out already? Once a church is formed, it's formed. And if God uses someone with an apostolic, biblical apostolic ministry to form a church, that man will eventually die and go on to his reward and there will be no apostle with any authority over the church. Period. The authority that man got, he got how? He earned it by his service to those people. As a nurse cherisheth her children. Arbitrary authority is not in your Bible. Do you hear me? Arbitrary totalitarian authority is not in your Bible. This is Christ's church. By the way, that preacher that God used to get that string of churches going, he may fall into sin. Does that invalidate the churches? No. Why? Because it's not the apostles' church. It's Christ's church. And Christ is the head over all things to the church. Do you hear me today? Apostolic authority is a big topic. And it needs to be rightly understood. Now... Paul used the term father here in our text, but we want to look at a couple other verses for this use of the term father. Go to 1 Corinthians 4.15 quickly. He said, as a father, his children, we exhorted, comforted, and charged. If I can find my place, it's always hardest to get myself in order. Much less anybody else. 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though we have 10,000, excuse me, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the Father, through the gospel. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So he alludes to being a in the Father figure, 
by begatting them through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. And so you see here, he's entreating the church at Corinth by that local apostleship, by the fact that he was there. He's not entreating them here as an apostle of the Lamb. He's not citing here his authority as handpicked by Christ, though he does use that in different places to the church at Corinth. Here he's saying, listen to me. I'm the one that came to your city. I'm the one that told you about Christ. I'm the one that opened my Bible and shared the gospel with you and organized your church into a church and ordained your pastors. So he says, be ye followers of me. And he's citing that earned authority. By the way, a father has earned authority over his children. First, he had to woo and win a mama. And then he had to take good enough care of her to keep her alive and with him. For her to have the child and then to raise and then he raised that child. And by the way, a father, you know, you may say um, kid says to you, why do I have to do that? And you say, because I'm the dad and I say so. Well, that's not going to get you very far. You better earn your authority as a father as well. <coughs> Arbitrary authority is tyranny. He says um, in Matthew 23, Jesus Christ says, call no man father upon earth. For one is your father. Let's go there real quick. <clears throat> um, this deals with a concept, some of the concept of um, <coughs> overreach of authority. Matthew 23, 9. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. This is Jesus speaking to the multitude and to his disciples saying, verse two, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses's seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe that observe and do, but do not ye after their works for they say and do not. How could Christ tell the, his disciples and the multitudes to do what the Pharisees were saying, but not what they do? It's because of jurisdiction. It's because the Pharisees were sitting in Moses's seat. So they had gotten there, and whether they had gotten there rightfully or wrongfully, Jesus didn't even bother with that. And he told them, don't do what they do, because they bind grievous burdens and heavy to be borne, and they themselves will not lift them with one of their fingers. Um, And that's the context there. He says, all their works they do for to be seen of men, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And then this is where he says, be not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Do you hear that? He's bringing down this idea of superiority. He's saying they've got a jurisdiction, so you need to do what they say, but don't do what they do. Don't emulate them. Don't idolize them. Don't put them up on a pedestal. Because their authority is limited to their jurisdiction. And the only reason they have any authority is because it's given them by God. And they are limited in that authority they have been given, as Jesus aptly showed them by defying their false authority over and over and over again. Now, Jesus um, said this, call no man father upon earth. And he says, neither call them rabbi, master, for one is your master, that's God. And this is what God wants us to understand about apostles, pastors, the um there in ephesians it also mentions prophets which we will study and we have studied some someday we'll study it some more there's a biblical new testament prophet that is currently in operation but it has nothing to do with this weirdo stuff going on everywhere it's nostradamus stuff and there's a biblical explanation for it just go study it out for yourself study the word prophecy study what it means and study the texts about it it's not a bunch of weird stuff like we've got going on today it means someone who proclaims proclaims the word of God, preaches God's word, Um, specifically um, the watchman and the wall type, proclaiming the word of God, warning the church of God. We would call them a revivalist. Now, (coughs) pioneer missions. I want to talk about this for just a second here. If the Lord will give me any voice to speak. Pioneer missions um, follows in the work of Paul, and it should follow under the authority of Paul, modeled after Paul's ministry. And the only way it can do that is if it's an apostolic ministry. 
So that pioneer mission work then is an exceedingly, exceedingly difficult work. Go back to 1 Thessalonians, and we will close here, Lord willing. So here Paul... Had, he had not in this passage, in another passage, he said he robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do service to this church, to the church that he was speaking to. Here in Thess, the church to the, of the Thessalonians here, he says to them, man, I'm stumbling. Help me, Lord. He says to them, we, you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Now, a lot of people are quick here to say that Paul supported his own ministry. And while Paul did that at times, and he tried to as much as he could have, there were many times he couldn't make good money. You can't make much money in a basket hanging off a wall. You can't make much money running for your life. You can't make much money in a rock pile having been stoned. You can't make much money in jail. You can't make much money in three weeks in a city. You can't make much money whenever your trade is tent making and you're living with Lydia who sells purple. You're not going to be good for much. Okay, so we're quick to quote that. And we're not usually balanced in it. Labor that Paul's speaking of is not always labor for profit. The apostle is a hardworking individual and his labors are night and day. The labors never cease. It might be cares of this life, fixing broken equipment, patching clothes together, um, shopping for food in a mobile life capacity that denies you the convenience of long-term planning and storing. You don't get a deep freeze in pioneer mission work a lot of time. When you're bumping from place to place all of the time, you're not going to get a lot of the conveniences. Um, So even little things like taking a bath, washing your clothes can turn into big jobs that take an exorbitant and ridiculous amount of time. But it's part of it. Excuse me. Paul said he labored night and day. He labored night and day. Sometimes he labored and he got paid for his labor, but he always labored whether he got paid or not. And that's the life of an apostle. I just wanted to throw that in there um, because we hadn't directly covered verse 9. Lord, help us. He always labored. The work seems to never end, and there's never enough time to study as deeply as one would like. Um, Paul didn't have time to run a business most places that he lived. Now, the authority of the apostle then that we looked, looked at is as a father exhorts, comforts, and charges his children. There was the authority of the 12 apostles of the Lamb over all the churches because those are the ones they started. And then there's the authority of a preacher who begins a church work, who has a special place in the hearts of the people because he's earned it. But there is none of this arbitrary authority that people claim as apostolic authority. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would take this feeble message, this weak message, this base message, and that you would use it, Lord, for the edification of your church. And Lord, that you'd help us to get back to biblical terms. And biblical words, Father. Lord, uh, Lord, we shouldn't be afraid of any word in the Bible. There shouldn't be any reason to fear it or to avoid it or to try and excuse it away, Lord. Help us, Lord, just to believe your book. Help us to obey your book. <clears throat> and help us to follow in the footsteps of those that have gone, gone on before us. Lord, uh, this is a very difficult message to listen to because of all my coughing and I just pray that you'd heal me father so that I can preach your word I don't deserve to father but I pray that you would heal my cough in Jesus name and please help these people and bless them for Christ's sake amen